This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Today, I am joined by Doc Parsley. He served as the undersea medical officer at Naval Special Warfare Group One from 2009 to 2013. While there, he led the development and supervised the group's first sports medicine rehab center. He's a former Navy SEAL and received his medical training in Bethesda at the Uniform Services University of Health Sciences. He interned in OBGYN at Balboa Naval Hospital and subsequently completed a naval residency in hyperbarics and diving medicine in 2006. He's a member of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and served as Naval Special Warfare's expert on sleep medicine. I love this. His philosophy for wellness is simple. In order to optimize our health and get the most out of our bodies and minds, we must live more closely to the way we evolved as a species. He believes that many diseases and disorders that we accept as inevitable in modern society are unnecessary complications of poor sleeping habits, living in a toxic environment, eating foods we are not designed to digest, and allowing stress to overwhelm us. His passion is to help his patients and clients achieve the highest quality of life possible and realize their health, performance, and longevity goals. Welcome, Doc Parsley. I'm really excited to have you. You are the sleep guru. And Thank I think- you. You know, one of the reasons why I really wanted us to connect is this is a huge pain point for my patients. And I feel like, you know, for most of us that are traditional Western medicine trained, there wasn't really an emphasis on the need for sleep, why it's important. And I'm curious, and I do know a bit about your story, but I would imagine some of my listeners don't. How did you get from being a Navy SEAL to going to medical school to being the sleep guru? Can you kind of fill in the gaps for us so we can understand that progression? Yeah, and I don't know if you purposely sculpted it that way, but it goes right into you know what you just opened with. Yeah, because I learned nothing about sleep in medical school either. <laughs> so I actually joined the military right out of high school. I mean, ironically, I'm actually a high school dropout. Joined the military to become a SEAL because I like is well before SEALs had any celebrity status. Nobody even knew what a SEAL was, but I'd seen some videos and read some books and stuff about. Navy SEAL training being the toughest training in the world. And I was a very physical guy. And so I want to go see if I could do the toughest training in the world. Since obviously my brain didn't work too well, like academic aspirations weren't really in my vision of the future. So I joined, obviously I was successful getting through SEAL training. I was a SEAL for six years, got out of the SEAL team. I was uh, a SEAL during the end of the Clinton administration, beginning of the George Bush seniors. So you know, we had the first Gulf War, which was not, you know, it's kind of more like a skirmish, really kind of an air thing. And so I just really did a lot of training, like over and over and over again, like the same <laughs> training, same training, same training, different people, same training. And I was like, yeah, this was cool, but, you know, time to maybe go do something else. Like, so while I was in the military, I actually had to go through quite a bit of academics, which I wasn't anticipating. I thought, you know, it's just going to like run and climb stuff, <laughs> carry heavy stuff and shoot guns. Like I didn't, but I had to do a lot of academics and I did really well, much to my surprise. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe I can go get some kind of degree and, you know, you know, none of my family had ever graduated high school or college or anything like that. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe I can go be one of those people, be one of those white collar folks. And 
So I was dating a woman who had become my wife, who is getting her master's degree in physical therapy. And I used to read her textbooks while I was on deployment and things like anatomy and physiology, kinesiology, because I wanted to make myself a better athlete, essentially. And I found it interesting. So I thought maybe I'd do that. So I started volunteering at St. Diego Sports Medicine Center because you need 2000 volunteer hours just to apply to PT school. They pretty quickly hired me. And then I worked as a physical therapy aide through the time I was in college, pretty quickly decided I didn't want to be a physical therapist, but San Diego Sports Medicine Center was this mecca of healthcare. I mean, we had had every kind of health practitioner you could possibly imagine, like massage therapists, acupuncturists, you know, athletic trainers, strength and conditioning coaches, MDs, DOs, orthopedic surgeons, sports med, like everything you can think of we had. And so I got, you know, over the course of my time working there, which is like four and a half, five years that I worked there. I just got to know all of the different professions and got to know all the guys and gals that were doing them. And they, one of the, the senior doctor there kind of put an ego challenge up it was, as I was arguing with these other doctors going, there's no way I could be a doctor. I'm a high school dropout. Like, you, you know, you guys need to pump the brakes, be a little more realistic here. And he said, well, the question isn't whether you could get in. The question is, would you go if you got in? And I was like, oh yeah, good point. So that kind of threw down the gauntlet. I applied to medical school. I got in. I was already married. I already had kids. The military was going to pay me to go to medical school instead of the other way around. I'd be able to support my family while I was going to medical school. No brainer. So I went to the military, figured I would get back to the SEAL teams in my payment. You know, the way the military works, you give them years. They'll give you training and then you give them years, right? So they'll train you to be a doctor, but then you have to be a doctor for them for eight years. And so I figured I'd make it back to the SEAL teams. I did. I got there at this great time where, you know, the military's like any big bureaucratic organization. It takes 10 years to get stuff funded. And so they had been trying to build their first sports medicine facility for probably close to a decade. And I got there right when the funding got there, right when it got approved. And so I got put in charge of building this thing out and we hired all of the people that people would assume that the SEALs already had. And this is 2009, 2010, when we we're finishing up, hired our first strength and conditioning coach, our first nutritionist, our first PT, our first athletic trainer, like, you know, everything that you would have thought we would have, we didn't have any of that. So we hired all these people, built this great, you know, healthcare facility, rehab facility. And then I was the least qualified dumbest guy around because I'd hired all these experts, you know, I had ortho rounds coming through and pain rounds coming through. It's like, you know, what did I have to offer at this point? And so they put me in charge of managing it because that's what you do when, when you're the dumbest guy around, they put you in charge. So my office was in the facility though. And so the SEALs would come and they'd close the door and they'd tell me, Hey man, I want to talk to you about what's really going on with me because they're like professional athletes. You don't, the worst thing that can happen is you put them on the bench and the doctor's the guy who could put them on the bench. So they don't like to tell you the truth when they have to go see you for their mandated physical everything's perfect. Like, you know, they check off a hundred questionnaires, perfect, 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 perfect. No problems. Like probably pretty unlikely. If you didn't see over 20 years, you probably have some issues, but you just like nod along and go, okay, good. You're good to go. And they came in and they were telling me the same story over and over again. You know, first they're saying my motivation is terrible. You know, they're seals, they're hardworking guys. They still get up and they do it, but it's a grind. Like Mm -hmm. every day is a grind for them. Like my motivation is terrible. My mood's all over the place. I get really angry. I get really sad. I'm snappy at my kids. I'm snappy with my wife. You know, I 
just feel like emotionally off. My attention is terrible. I can't concentrate for more than five seconds. I walk in a room. I don't know why the hell I'm there. I'm leaving my house. It takes me five times to leave my house before I actually get on the road to going to work because I've realized five times that I've forgotten something. I have to keep going back. And, you know, I'm putting on body fat. I'm getting weaker. I'm working out on a, like a very strict workout routine. I'm eating a you know, perfectly designed nutritional plan. You know, my sex drives down, my strength is down, my endurance is down. Like, I just feel like crap. And then they say, well, you know, but maybe I'm just getting old. And, you know, they're like 30 or 35, yeah. maybe 40. And I'm like, I'm like, I don't really think you're over the hill yet. Like, let's see if we can figure something out. So, and to be honest, I had no idea. Like I, like you, like I'm Western trained physician. I knew how to recognize and treat disease. They didn't have any diseases. Yeah. You know, I did a huge panel. I just did a shotgun approach. I was just like, I'll test everything I could possibly think to test. And they would come back with, you know, high oxidation and high inflammation and sort of low anabolic markers and low hormones. And of course they all had vitamin D3 deficiency and magnesium deficiencies. And, you know, they sort of looked like, you know, pre-diabetic 50 year old men who are 30 pounds overweight. Like that's kind of what they look like on their labs. But obviously that's not what was sitting in front of me. So I was like, you know, maybe this is, you know, the combat fatigue or shell shock or like whatever they've called it in the different wars. This is like nine years into the war. Maybe there's something breaking these guys down. I started learning about adrenal fatigue, which is, you know, kind of on the skirts of whether that's a real you know, medical diagnosis and whatever in Western medicine. And so I started looking into that. I started looking into vitamin and nutritional deficiencies. I started giving guys like Myers cocktails and like giving them adrenal support supplements and all. And some guys got better, moderately better. No one like turned around hundred percent. And then one day, like maybe the 100th guy who had been in my office telling me the same story that every other guy had told me, it just sparked, you know, uh, turned on, you know, flipped on the proverbial light bulb over my head. And I was like, huh? Like, and I made a note that he was taking Ambien. I was like, it seems like that's really common. But I didn't think anything of it. Just like, well, maybe that's pretty common. So then I went back to my charts and every single guy who had been in my office had told me that they were taking Ambien. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. And of course, like I'd had pharmacology. I knew the class of drug. I knew how it worked, but I didn't know anything about it really. Do we really ever know anything about it? Because mm -hmm. right, the pharmaceutical company owns the research. They give what they want to give to the FDA. So what do we really know? We know what they want us to know. And so I was like, well, maybe this could be related. And so I was really just going to look into the effects of Ambien and if Ambien had any side effects. And then, of course, that mandated that I figure out something about sleep because I didn't know anything about sleep. I'd never had a single class on sleep. And I was like, yeah, I probably chose the two worst professions in the world for valuing sleep. You know, Navy SEALs, Special Forces don't care about sleep. You're weak if you need sleep. And, you know, the medical community, like, every third night call is a very normal thing. And you're staying up for 36, 40 hours in a row every, every three days. And that's just normal. You know, right. That's, and so I just thought, well, I'll learn about sleep and, <laughs> and I'll, I'll just see how this ambient thing interferes with sleep. Because as soon as you start trying to figure out if ambient has effects, how it's affecting their sleep, well, then you have to know something about how you measure sleep. And then once you start learning about how you measure sleep, then you're like, okay, well, if that's how you measure sleep, then what is Ambien actually doing to elk? Oh, and then, okay, well, if, it, if it's diminishing deep sleep, it's diminishing REM sleep, what is that going to do? Because what's the purpose of sleep? And so I really didn't know, like anybody else, I think most of your listeners would probably be surprised to learn that 
healthcare professionals don't learn anything about sleep. And you don't have any more of an idea about sleep than the barista at Starbucks. Like, why would you? You've never been taught. So, uh, you know, as I learned more, I was like, well, you know, this, you know, the principle of Occam's razor is like, this could actually be it, right? Like, this could actually explain everything. I wasn't naive enough to think it would explain everything. But it was interesting that every single symptom they had reported to me could be tied back to sleep. And so I said, well, let's see about getting them off of sleep drugs. And of course, they're SEALs, so they're extremists. So if one ambient's good, two must be better, three's probably ideal. And then chase that with a couple of cocktails, you know, because that helps you get sleep faster. And, you know, they were just, and then when I did like uh, inpatient observed sleep studies on them, they would come back with 99% stage two sleep, which essentially just means they aren't sleeping. They're just unconscious for four to six hours and then they're getting up. There's obviously some regeneration going on there or they would be dead, but I don't think anybody can really quantify like how much regeneration you're getting in stage two sleep since that's really the transitional phase of sleep. And most what we have documented, what we know happens during deep sleep and we know happens during REM sleep, that's the restorative aspects. They're obviously getting some kind of regeneration replenishment in stage two, but I don't think it's clear as to how much. It's, you know, maybe 20% of what they would get if they got sleep. So like I said, I had all these labs. I knew they were all vitamin D3 deficient. That was kind of the beginning of this big sort of you know, the Rob Wolf-esque kind of health influencers had just started talking about you know, vitamin D3 deficiency. And I knew that was associated with sleep. And so I figured, you know, they, a lot of the times they're working at night, sleeping during the day, if they do go outside, a lot of times they're covered in all sorts of gear and clothing. And so probably, you know, they'd be deficient. They were deficient. I knew they were on the lab. So I'm like, all right, well, let's just give them vitamin D3. That's probably going to fix everything, you know? And then of course, you know, it didn't fix everything, but it made people a little bit better. And then I uh, learned that magnesium was a cofactor for all the vitamin D3 reactions. And so they all had magnesium deficiencies. And so they started giving them magnesium and then everybody knew about melatonin. So I started giving them melatonin and I started trying to get them off of sleep drugs. And it's really, it was lifestyle modification, right? I was getting them off of sleep drugs, getting them to quit drinking their way to sleep. And then you know, give them some supplements during the day to support their anabolic processes like DHEA and some zinc to prevent aromatization of testosterone so we could bump their anabolic hormones up a little bit, you know, giving them some adrenal support complexes to see if we could rebalance their stress hormones and just, you know, let's see what happens when people start sleeping well. And lo and behold, they started sleeping better and all of their symptoms started going away. And I wouldn't say that 100% of 100% of people's symptoms went away, but I would say 85% of 85% of people's symptoms went away. But everybody felt better and everybody was performing better. And it would be clear to me later that the blast injuries, the traumatic, the repetitive blast injuries causing you know mild to moderate TBIs over their 20-year career was seriously impacting everything as well. And so, you know, I was in a great place as I was learning all this because... I could, you know, the SEALs did have some cloud at that point and I could call people and I could say, hey, I read your book or I watched your TED talk. Or I saw your lecture. I'm the doctor for the West Coast SEAL teams. Could I come train with you? Could I consult? You know, can I ask you questions about my clients? Can I, you know, bring you on as a consultant and all this? And everybody was really helpful. And so I learned a lot really quickly. I started having success and then the SEAL teams then started putting me in front of groups of SEALs to try to convince them of the importance of all of this. And I knew the culture didn't value sleep. So I talked about hormones 
and I built it all around performance and hormones, performance and hormones, but I was the sleep guy. And I spent about 20% of my lecture talking about nutrition. And then I ended up sharing the stage with Rob Wolf a lot. And he was the nutrition guy. He spent about 20% of his lecture talking about sleep. Uh, and so we had this immediate bromance and, you know, the clouds parted and all that. We became fast friends. And, you know, that just led to me being invited to more and more, you know, symposiums and then getting lecture gigs with sports teams and corporations. And then I, like I said, I've really kind of started talking about sleep as a way to talk about hormones, almost a sleight of hand because the military wasn't about to let me put hormones in these guys. And I started drinking my own Kool-Aid, like the more I researched, I was like, and the more patients I worked with, I was like, oh, this really is powerful. And now, you know, 11 years later, whatever we are now, it's almost 12 years later, I honestly, with every fiber of my being, believe that there's nothing that's anywhere close to being as important, and as important as sleep to our overall health, wealth, wellness, performance, enjoyment of life, all of that, so... That's an incredible story. I think there's so many pieces to unpack and something that I say with great frequency, not because of my Western medicine training, but just something I've learned along the way for same with you, sleep is foundational to our health. And for women in particular, and women as they, you know, get north of 35 and, you know, they have been conditioned and men the same way that sleep is not important and we can sleep when we're dead. When people come to me and women's big pain point with age is the weight gain. And so I've kind of gotten to a point now where I remind them that if I can't get you to sleep through the night, I can't get you to lose weight. Right. Seems much to your point about, you know, saying to the seals, like you, we're going to make it about hormones. So they'll be interested in the sleep piece. I have to talk about sleep as a, if you want to lose weight, you got to sleep. Right. Right. Kind of a perfect segue into, you know, speaking to the listeners at large about, you know, sleep terminology and sleep cycles. And so I think many people put their head on the pillow and when they wake up in the morning, they're like that defines sleep, but let's kind of unpack like what actually happens to our bodies when we're asleep. And I definitely want you to touch on the glymphatic system, which is something I talk about a lot because Mm -hmm. it's just important for people to understand there's all these restorative processes that only go on when we're asleep because it requires so much energy derived from our brains. And so I think it would be really be valuable for people to understand that sleep is more than just putting our head on the pillow and waking up in the morning and checking the box. Right, right. Yeah, well, that's a nice little underhand toss for me because that's exactly how I like to talk about it. I think it's easy to be more simplistic and not be super, uh, not get down into the weeds of the science because there's a lot of stuff you can't really control. And then there's a lot of stuff that it takes an incredible amount of education and expertise to control. I like to just start off with like the really simplistic idea that's so simplistic, it took me 10 years to come up with. But if you think about it, when you're born, you're born into this contract and the contract has two, you know, a couple of parts, but one of the parts is that you're going to die. Life's 100% fatal. We know that's going to happen. But there's another part of the contract is that you need a certain amount of recovery for a certain amount of time of being awake. And as an adult, once you're a fully formed adult and your brain's fully formed, so somewhere in your 20s, we kind of settle out at about eight hours of sleep a night. And everybody wants to argue about, is it eight hours? Is it 8.2 hours? Is it seven point? Like whatever. It's like, okay, it's not the same every single night. That's on average. And it depends on what you've done during the day. And it depends on your genotype and phenotype. And like, there's a ton of things that are involved in and how much sleep you need every night. But in general, if you're awake for 16 hours, it takes about eight hours to recover and then be awake for 16 hours again. 
Now, the important thing to realize about that, though, is that that's the only recovery you get. You don't get recovery during the 16 hours. The only time you get to recover is during the eight hours. So the entire purpose of me sleeping tonight is to get my brain and body ready for tomorrow so that I can do tomorrow at least as well as I did today, maybe a little bit better, right? I've gotten a little better. I've learned a little. I've gained a little skill. Maybe I've got a little more fitness. I've eaten better. Like my nutrition's getting better. And so ideally, I would wake up slightly better tomorrow, at least in certain areas that are important to me. I would wake up slightly better tomorrow, and I would actually get to progress and move towards an idealized future and my that I want, right? Like something I'm going to move towards something that I think will bring me fulfillment and joy in my life. And in order to do that, I have to recover because obviously if I just keep breaking myself down every day, I'm going to go into each progressive tomorrow. I'm going to go into it with fewer resources and the fewer resources I have, the less performance I will be able to generate towards the future that I want. And, you know, that future could be tomorrow. Like I want to wake up and be a better parent tomorrow. I want to be less snappy with my kids tomorrow. Like, you know, they've really been, bu- you know, your like kids have been bugging me and I feel guilty because my kids have been bugging me. So like tomorrow I want to be better with my kids or, you know, it could be some, you know, it could be running a marathon in six months. It could be, you know, building a financial empire, whatever it is you want to build. But they're like your whole opportunity to get better each day is while you sleep tonight. And so as most people probably know, you don't actually get stronger when you exercise. You get weaker when you exercise, right? You actually damage the muscle fibers. And if you really strain them, you actually rupture the muscle fibers. And you're straining on tendons and ligaments and cartilage and everything's getting damaged. And then when you sleep, it gets repaired. And when it gets repaired, it gets repaired in a way to where it's more resilient against whatever stress you're putting on it. So if you're trying to get stronger, your muscle fibers will grow back stronger. If you're trying to gain endurance, you'll, you know, your muscle fibers will grow back in a way that's going to allow you to produce more energy over a longer period of time. And you'll decrease inflammation in your tendons and ligaments and cartilage and all the joint spaces that you damage during your exercise, right? So you'll get better. And obviously when you're a kid, you're growing, your muscles are growing fast, your bones are growing fast, you're getting kind of measurably better every day. And then at some point in our life, we kind of hit almost a plateau to where we're trying to wake up tomorrow, not diminished. Right. <laughs> and then you start losing that battle eventually. Right. And then as you get older, you're waking up slightly less than you were the day before. And that's what we call aging. And so the better your quality of sleep, the more years of your life that you can sleep really well and restore, regenerate your brain and your body that night, the more years you're going to go without aging, right? And the younger you're going to look for your age and the better you're going to perform for your age if you're ranking yourself compared to the general population. So the important thing to think about when you first go to sleep, you know, as you said, there's stages of sleep. And in the last 10 years, it's really gone through a transformation for a long, long time. For 50 of the 60 years of sleep medicine, it was stages one, two, three, and four, and then it was REM sleep. And then they started saying, well, this is, these are slow wave sleep cycles. And well, we're going to call this one beta and alpha and theta and delta based on your brain waves. And then, well, you know, let's just go with REM and non-REM because, you know, there's some confusion around it. And so I use the traditional phases because I think it's easier to think about conceptually. So when you first go to bed, you're in, when you first get ready for bed, and this is what you're talking about, the unfortunate reality of sleep is that really the definition of sleep is that you become unaware of your environment 
it's a barrier between you and your environment. So your, so your senses are still working, right? My eyes still work, my ears still work, my skin still feel, my nose, like everything still works, but I'm not paying attention. My brain's not paying attention to it. I'm not processing it the same. However, I can be awakened. So somebody could wake me up and they could wake me up through any of my senses. They could turn a bright light on the room and that would wake me up. They could make a loud noise and that would wake me up. They could touch me, that would wake me up, right? Like there's all sorts of things. You could create some smell in the room probably that would wake me up. So my senses are still working, but I'm not paying attention to them. But I could be awakened past those. And then the third part is that there has to be some predictable sleep architecture. So these stages that I'm talking about. And these stages are designed on a histogram, which is like a nice little architectural design where it looks like this stair step and then a plateau at the bottom and then stair step up. And then you go through a little REM cycle and you, you know, you, each one of these sleep cycles takes 90 to 120 minutes. So when we combine your brainwave patterns and your respiratory rate and, your, and how much you're moving and whether your eyes are moving and pulse ox and like all, we combine a ton of data together and we can produce this histogram. Now, the important part to realize though, is that if that histogram doesn't exist, you can't really call that sleep. You've only fulfilled two of the three criteria, right? You're not paying attention sensorially. You can be awakened, but you don't have these predictable patterns, which means a lot of what's the benefit of sleep isn't happening. So let's talk about the benefits. When you first go to bed, all that's happening really is that your senses are starting to dull. You're changing the way you're processing your senses. So you lay in bed and you're in stage one sleep, which means that's that groggy phase where you can hear people in the next room or television or a dog barking next door. Like you can hear things, you can sense things, but you're not paying attention to it in the same way. And you're aware that you're not paying attention to it in the same way. And then eventually you drift off and you get into stage two, which is proper sleep transition from stage two to stages three and four, which are the deep sleep cycles. And at the beginning of the night, your sleep cycle of 90 to 120 minutes will be about 90% deep sleep, about 10% REM. And then every sleep cycle you go through, that ratio will shift into where your last sleep cycle before you wake up is going to be about 90% REM and 10% deep. So when you go into deep sleep, when you first get into stages three and four, one of the big things that happens, like you're talking about, is all the astrocytes in the brain, they shrink up and they create a pathway for the cerebral spinal fluid to flush toxins out, to flush out waste products, right? So I always tell people, you're just a really big version of a cell, right? You take food in, you use it in a certain way, you produce waste. Well, every cell in your body does exactly the same thing. So you got to flush the toilet, right? You got to get rid of the waste products. And so this is one of the big things that the lymphatic system does. And one of the big things that it does is it washes away something called adenosine. And adenosine is the backbone of ATP. ATP is the source of energy for all of our cells, right? And that's just triphosphates. It's three phosphates. So it's adenosine with three phosphates. Every time you take a phosphate off, you produce a big bolus of energy that your cell gets to use. And then you go down to ADP, diphosphate, and then AMP, monophosphate, and then just eventually A. And then when adenosine's floating around your brain, it's binding receptors in your brain that's creating sleep pressure. And that makes you feel like going to sleep. So it's your body's mechanism for measuring the more adenosine I have, the more likely it is I need to go replenish my brain and I need to sleep. And so you'll flush out all these toxins. Adenosine is one of the big ones. You'll also then start you know, transporting nutrients into the cells, changing the concentrations of neurotransmitters in different regions of the brain, neurotransmitters, neuropeptides, everything's shifting. It's dynamic. Like everybody thinks of sleep as this quiescent period. It's not. It's like your brain is just changing. Like every second, different regions of your brain are shifting. Like it bounces all around in your brain. Like what area is the most effective or the most active? 
what neuropeptides and neurotransmitters are being produced, which ones are being diminished. And that shifts all throughout the night. And that shifts to get you into these deep sleep cycles. A great deal about our focus on everyday wellness is on supporting gut health. And one of my new favorite ways to recommend to family and friends and even clients is to consider colostrum. And so Equip Foods has an amazing product that helps to improve immunity and gut health and recovery. And each scoop contains grass-fed, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free colostrum. And if you're wondering what colostrum is, it's a nutritional powerhouse that serves as the first source of nutrition for mammals in nature. It's been shown to enhance immune function, gut health, and recovery with vital nutrients such as lactoferrin, growth factors, and prolon-rich polypeptides. Colostrum is a natural milk-like fluid produced by mammals immediately following delivery of the newborn. And while colostrum is a dairy product, it does not contain milk or lactose. So most people with lactose intolerance usually find colostrum very easily digestible and beneficial to gut health. You can use one scoop a day. You can mix it in things like coffee or mix it in shakes or even yogurt or even some of your baked food recipes. As I mentioned, has a lot of health benefits, including research demonstrating the improvement in a reduction in inflammation, promoting good gut flora, and supporting restoring leaky gut to normal permeability. And what I love best is that Equip Foods is very ethically focused. Their cows are humanely raised and ethically treated, and cows produce an excess of colostrum when nursing. So only after their babies get what they need are they able to source the excess colostrum for use in their products. There is three grams of colostrum in each scoop and one serving in comparison to main competitors has just one gram. And research demonstrates that this dose of three grams actually promotes more benefits to gut health, immune function, recovery, and vitality. So if you'd love to take care of your health, you can go to www.equipfoods.com slash Cynthia20 to get 20% off your first order. That's www.equipfoods.com slash Cynthia20. You definitely want to check this out. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients. And it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeca during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more, were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy, provide mental clarity, and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification and alkalinity in the body, balances hormones, fights free radicals, and neutralizes lactic acid, all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix that needs to be part of your daily routine. And Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. Now the other thing that happens is during deep sleep, once you start cleaning out your brain, another thing you're doing is your hypothalamus is sensing all of your hormones in your body. 
And this is where it's saying, okay, we need more of this. We need less of this. And it's causing the pituitary to secrete the hormones that lead to the sex hormones that we think about, like growth hormone, which is we're measuring through IGF-1 or testosterone or estrogen or even thyroid, like everything's being controlled. Our stress hormones, everything's being controlled. Now, the interesting thing is to think about this conceptually, and this is the part that I said is so simple, it took me 10 years to figure out. Most people know what fight or flight is, right? Fight or flight is the maximum amount of stress hormones that your body can possibly produce, right? You are completely stressed to the max. And a lot of great things happen. Now, obviously you're in a bad situation because the only reason you kind of hit fight or flight is if you're in serious fear for your life or your well-being or someone that you love, you know, the same things. And so all that you care about is getting rid of that threat. So if it's a car crash or near car crash, we've all felt that huge adrenaline rush that comes from nearly getting in a car crash or getting in a car crash. And we don't necessarily feel it as it's coming on, but we definitely feel it when it goes away. And we're like, whoa, what was that? Like that was a big dump. So what's happening is you, you're maximizing your stress hormones and your stress hormones are so high that it's completely shifted your physiology to be a damage control vehicle, right? Like all your body and brain are doing at that point is getting you out of that danger. That's it. Nothing else matters. It doesn't matter if you can reproduce. It doesn't matter if you can digest food. It doesn't matter if you can fight off infections. It doesn't matter if you can repair anything. Nothing matters, right? Just like, just get out of there. So obviously it boosts our blood glucose up really high to give us more energy. It norepinephrine and epinephrine increase our heart rate. Our pupils dilate. We start taking a builder vision. Our pulmonary tree dilates. We start taking more air. Our reflexes get faster, our pain threshold goes up. So we get sort of superhuman. And then we shut off the prefrontal cortex, the executive functioning of our brain, because we want to be super impulsive, right? You don't want to calculate how you're going to get out of a car crash. You just want to react, right? If somebody's shooting at you, you don't sit around and wonder what kind of gun they have or like how they're dressed or like, you don't want to think about anything. You just want to flee. You just want to dive behind something, like get out of the way. And so we're designed to do that. Now, interestingly, there's a lot of stuff that isn't going on. Like I was saying, like reproduction, sex hormones, repair, regeneration, immune system, immune functioning, all of that stuff. And your prefrontal cortex isn't working when you're in fight or flight. When you're in deep sleep, that's exactly the opposite of fight or flight. That's the lowest stress hormone you will ever have at any point of any day of your life. And so the exact opposite things are going on. Your brain and your senses and your body are essentially useless at this point, right? And you're doing all of the other stuff, right? You aren't doing any of the fight or flight stuff. You're doing everything else. So it's the exact opposite. That's when you're repairing. That's where you're regenerating, where you're balancing your hormones. You're repairing the damaged tissues. You're fighting off infection, parasites, viruses, bacteria, whatever it is. You're repairing inflammation. You're decreasing oxidation. You're doing everything you can to regenerate, replenish fuel sources in your cells. You're anabolic. Fight or flight is maximally catabolic. Maximum anabolic is deep sleep. Anabolic is taking small things and building bigger, more complex things. Catabolic is taking complex things and breaking them down into small things. So a good catabolic example, we see this in elderly people for whatever reasons, and there's lots of reasons, but as they become more catabolic, they start using their muscles as a fuel source for amino acids to get their cellular needs met throughout the day. Well, that means they have less muscle mass and less bone mass. And they start actually using their body as a fuel source. And that's what catabolic activity is. And this gets really important as I fumble through this long story, making it longer. So you get the maximum catabolic 
maximum antibiotic. So maximum antibiotic means that's when you're getting better, right? Now, not only are you flushing out the toxins, and that first sleep cycle is primarily about, like you're talking about lymphatics and flushing everything out, kind of rebalancing neurotransmitters. And then you go through, after your deep sleep, you're going into a little bit of REM, and REM is characterized by rehearsal. So one of the things that you're doing during REM is, you know, you're doing what we call these vivid dreams, type of colorful dreams that you'll remember. And the reason you're having these dreams is you're actually rehearsing information. And it might be stuff from today. It might be stuff from 10 years ago, like who knows, but it's all comparative to what you used your brain for today and what's weighing on your mind, your subconscious or your conscious mind. And you'll rehearse that stuff during dreams. And, you know, some people can feel like they can decipher meaning out of dreams. I'm not going to, I don't want to weigh in on that, but I want to say that it is a rehearsal mechanism that we know is fundamental to learning. So when you teach somebody to a new skill, playing an instrument, you know, playing a sport, typing on a keyboard, whatever, as people learn new skills, that's just in your working memory until you go to sleep. And then it gets put into a more durable track and it gets into your long-term memory. And once it's in your long-term memory, then you can start like sort of spreading tentacles from that information packed to other areas of your brain. And now you can compare it to other stuff that you know. And now you can start working with that information. And that's when you truly know it, right? That's when you, you really have formulated like all sorts of ways to access this information and you've attached it to all sorts of other things that you know. Now it's also during this rehearsal, it's also when you're emotionally categorizing something. So if you've had a spouse with your, if you had a spouse, if you had a spouse with your fight, if you had a fight with your spouse and it was something stupid, like leaving dishes in the sink, but it became like this really tumultuous fight that just puts you both in a bad mood for a couple hours and it really feels kind of stupid now. But if you don't sleep well tonight, the odds that that's going to stick around as a major event in your psyche is exponentially higher. So you want to categorize these events. And this is one of the things that we think happens with PTSD when people get especially if they're, if it's something traumatic where it causes a head injury at the same time, now you're interfering with their hormones and inflammation in their brain and you're interfering with their sleep, or it's just like so emotionally traumatic that they can't sleep. They're so stressed out. So they aren't sleeping and they don't get to emotionally categorize it. They don't get to rehearse it. They don't get to work with it. So the odds that it's going to continue to be a sore spot, is just going to grow and grow and grow. Just like if you don't repair your tendons and ligaments and muscles, those are going to be sore spots the next day as well, right? So it's like you're really repairing everything. And then, like I said, throughout the night, you're working more and more on your brain and more and more on your emotions, your cognition. And then what most people also don't realize is that if you are aligned with the circadian rhythm, which just means that you've aligned your body's rhythm with the sun, it's not the sun that wakes you up. It's just that you've aligned your normal rhythm, which will normally allow you to fall asleep and normally wake you up, you've aligned it to sunup and sundown. Like that, that's what it really means. So you always have that rhythm going on in your body. It just drifts. And men, it's a little bit longer than 24 hours and women, it's a little bit shorter than 24 hours. So without the sun as our cue over the course of six months, you'd be 180 degrees out, right? You could, you'd just be all over the place. You'd be so aligning the circadian rhythm. So what most people don't realize is that what's really waking you up the next morning is cortisol. And so your stress hormones are as close to zero as they're ever going to be that first deep sleep cycle for maybe an hour, hour and a half. And you ton of anabolic activity and then you're going to go up into REM and your stress hormones are going to climb up a little bit. And then the next sleep cycle, 
you're going to do the same thing. And every sleep cycle, your stress hormones are going to get a little higher. And then when they reach a certain level, they're high enough to wake you up. And that cortisol gets a bad rap. It's just, yeah, it's the stress hormone, but it's also the hormone that keeps us alive and awake in proportion to our environment. So if, we, if we're in a stressful area, like a car crash, we have maximum. If we're not in a stressful area, we just woke up and we roll out of bed and we lay on our couch and read a book and have a cup of coffee, you don't need much stress hormones. But then if somebody kicks in your door, starts robbing your house, well, then you're, you're going to have a lot of stress hormones, right? So it's a very useful hormone. It's not something to be looked at as a negative way. It's just we don't want it too high. And if it's too high, then we don't get good deep sleep and we don't get good anabolic activity. We don't get good recovery. And if it's too high when we're going to sleep, we might not get to sleep at all for a long time. And now it's decreasing the duration of our sleep as well as decreasing the quality of our sleep. And as I said, this contract is roughly 16 hours requires eight hours of sleep. And that's in order for you to be ready for tomorrow, right? I'm sleeping tonight to be ready for tomorrow. That's the whole purpose of it. Well, if I only get six hours of sleep instead of eight hours of sleep, tomorrow still comes. So where do I get the resources to get to do tomorrow? I raise my stress hormones. I increase catabolic activity. I start using my body as a fuel source and I start getting closer and closer to fight or flight. So I will start having some of those symptoms of fight or flight. But one of the big things that people completely overlook is that the higher my cortisol levels are during the day, if I'm using cortisol as a surrogate or a mitigator for my lack of sleep, if I'm using my stress hormones to get me through the day, I'm shutting down my prefrontal cortex. And this is my simulator. This is what allows me, this is what makes us the smartest animal on the planet is the prefrontal cortex. It allows us to think through things without actually having to do it. We're the only animal that can do this, right? We're like no other animal gets to you know, think about whether it would be better to save money or spend money. No other animal gets to rehearse whether or not they should do something in their mind. They just have to like go check it out and see if it works and it might kill them, right? And we don't have to jump off a five-story roof to know it's a bad idea. We can just extrapolate from what we know about gravity and our experience of like jumping off something five feet high. It's like, oh yeah, that would really probably hurt. And so, you know, even in today's era where, you know, the world is much more intellectual and cognitive than it is physical, you're shutting down the most important part of your brain with having high stress hormones. So that's my tirade. No, no, it's a beautiful explanation. And I hope that everyone kind of takes in kind of the big points that you're really trying to make is how restorative sleep is. And without it, we won't function optimally in any capacity. And you know, I start and I talk quite a bit about, you know, if we're sleep deprived, it impacts cognition that you touched on and our immune response and hormones, as you know, and, you know, inflammation. And I like to think and like to focus a lot on metabolic flexibility. So you become more insulin resistant, you, you gain weight, but there's also this psychological component too, to, to chronic sleep deprivation. And I know I actually have heard you talk about it quite a bit, but, you know, impacts anxiety and mood. And for anyone that's an adult that has ADHD, and they're not getting good quality sleep. I mean, all these things are impacted negatively when we're not prioritizing this part of our body or, you know, we're in a position where we're just not creating the space to have good quality sleep. So, you know, you touched on medications and as someone that used to prescribe a lot of these things to my cardiology patients, which makes me kind of shudder now, <laughs> I was stunned to realize that, you know, things like Ambien and Lunesta, et cetera, all, you know, impact REM sleep 
and they actually bind to these GABA receptors. And so, you know, if people are familiar with neurotransmitters and GABA, GABA is this calming neurotransmitter, one that we need and want. And so can you kind of touch on what happens when we take these kinds of medications, what happens to our quality of our sleep and also how it impacts these other neurotransmitters that aren't able to actually bind to the receptor sites that they need to? Right. So we could go on forever with this because you have to (laughs) think about everything that's really out there versus what the FDA puts out there. And, you know, sort of a fortunate thing that happened during my sort of tenure as the sleep enthusiast is, you know, the Z drug companies were getting successfully sued because they had withheld a bunch of literature that showed dissociative behavior where people were going out and, you know, getting prostitutes or going and gambling or you know, going to all you can eat buffets or like just doing all these sort of really primal behaviors. And they were having absolutely zero awareness of this. They weren't recognizing a, this behavior in themselves at all. Like, so you can have, and I've had this experience plenty of times, you can have a thoughtful in depth, normal conversation with somebody while they're on Ambien and they will have zero memory that you had that conversation. The next day you can, you could have it recorded and it was an hour, hour and a half long. They don't have any recollection of that conversation whatsoever. So it can fool everybody. So, you know, as I was talking about the circadian rhythm being aligned, that's essentially just the sun, right? So circa dia's, you know, just whatever. It's a job security where it's just circa is about dia's a day. It's about a day rhythm. It doesn't really mean anything other than about a day, but we know that ancestrally, evolutionarily, we use the sun as our cues to when to fall asleep probably because we're an 80% sight-driven animal and we don't see well at night and the world was probably a really dangerous place a thousand years ago at night. You know, probably 500 years ago, the world was a really dangerous place at night. Now we have, you know, electric lighting and there's the pros and cons of all that. But what happens if you use the sun as your cue for when you go to sleep? So if anybody's ever been camping and they didn't bring electric lighting with them, then they, they're privy to this and they've experienced it. And we've actually just recent, as recently as like five years ago, done studies with hunter-gatherers. There are still lots of people in the world that have never experienced electricity, which was kind of a shock to me when I started reading the studies. And, uh, you know, they studied them and they just like, they were putting activity watches on them and they were just like watching them and see what they do and see when they sleep and when they get up. And so it was aligned with what we always thought happened. And, you know, it's been validated over and over again. Basically, when the sun goes down, there's some ganglia in the back of our eyes that have nothing to do with vision. They just sense blue light. When they sense a decrease in the blue light, it fires this pathway that goes back through a region of our brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And then that eventually does the security pathway and starts stimulating something in the back of our brain called the pineal gland that secretes the hormone most people have heard of is melatonin. And then melatonin is sort of the, Matt Walker calls it the starter pistol. I love that metaphor. And it's like the initiation of all of the cascade of events that are going to make you sleepy. And so, as I told you earlier, really the definition of sleep is a lack of processing of our sensory, right? That's really what it is. Like there's a lack of awareness of your environment. So in order for that to happen, one of the big shifts that melatonin does, of course, it decreases the it decreases the ratios of what we call weight-promoting neurotransmitters, things like epinephrine and norepinephrine, histamine. This is why antihistamines can help people fall asleep. And it decreases the ratios of weight-promoting neurotransmitters. So really, being asleep is the absence of being awake. There aren't any sort of sleep-promoting neurotransmitters or just take away the weight-promoting ones. And then if there was a neuropeptide that you would call sleep-promoting, it would be GABA, as you're talking about the gamma immunobutyric acid. And what that does is it binds these GABA receptors in our 
neocortex, the part of our brain that we think of when we think of the human brain, the wrinkly bit that we see in pictures, that's where our sensory and motor is, right? And so that's where we're sensing and that's where we're using and processing and interpreting all of that. And so we want to shut that region down. And so GATA sort of bathes that air region of our brain and it lowers the resting potential of all those neurons, making those neurons harder to fire. And one of the reasons I don't like the term biohacking is because I say pharma is the original biohacker, right? Yeah. And this is a great example of biohacking. So pharma said, all right, well, this GABA molecule can bind this receptor and it causes that. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armor colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armor's colostrum strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armorous colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. Then we could make a molecule that would bind that receptor and do a hundred times, right? And so we could get people to sleep even when they can't sleep. 
And this started with benzodiazepines. So those are GABA analogs as well, which just means they act like GABA, they bind GABA receptors, and they're more powerful than GABA receptors. And then that had some dependency issues and respiratory suppression issues. And so they came up with something cleaner that binds to a different region of the GABA uh, receptor, has less of those effects on there, but now it works a thousand times more than GABA. And just like anything else in your body, you know, your body's a smart machine. It doesn't do work. It doesn't have to do. So if you get hormones exogenously, your body quits making hormones. If you have a thousand times more GABA effect than you need, you start downregulating GABA receptors. Why are you going to waste all your time making these protein structures on your cells when you have way more GABA effects than you need? You only need one catcher's mitt because there's 10,000 baseballs around, right? And so you start downregulating GABA receptors. Now, if you take the Z drug away, a normal amount of GABA is a GABA deficiency because you have one-tenth of the receptors. And so you only have about 10% of the GABA effect you need to sleep. And that's how it causes dependency. And that's what keeps people on sleep drugs once they start. Now, the other thing is I was saying, it works so much more powerfully than GABA that it completely shuts down regions of the brain that are associated with cognition, really. And so you don't have any awareness that you're doing it. And what happens is your neocortex gets so slow you're still operating. Who knows what the sensory is like? I don't know if that study's ever been done, but I bet the sensory is probably significantly impaired. But then your lizard brain t- takes over and you start engaging in more primal sort of behaviors because that region of your brain is still alive. You know, that's still working. And so the reason, like I said, that these companies were getting sued is because he, these people were completely shutting down their neocortex. They were still conscious and they still looked awake but none of this was firing. And as you said, it decreases REM sleep by about 80%. And the literature came out after they started getting successfully sued. Well, actually it kind of decreases deep sleep by about 30 to 40%. Then alcohol decreases deep sleep by about 60 to 80%. So my seals were drinking alcohol and taking overdosing on Ambien, which is why they're having 99% stage two sleep and they weren't essentially getting any sleep. So you know, whether you're taking an antihistamine or you're taking like a super physiologic dose of melatonin, which has all the same problems of taking super physiologic, any other hormone, you'll downregulate receptors, you'll downregulate production, you'll then end up in a place without your melatonin supplementation, you're actually going to be in a deficiency. So now you're not going to be able to sleep without your melatonin. And, or you're taking a Z-Jug or you're taking a benzo, any of those drugs interfere with the sleep architecture. Now, the interference isn't super cut and dry because if I studied your sleep every night for a month, no two nights would be the same, right? You would have approximately the same ratios of deep sleep and REM sleep, but it would vary. So how much am I decreasing it? You know, it's hard to say, but over time, we know that any sleep drug that you take significantly decreases the quality of sleep, which means that you're decreasing the entire purpose of sleeping. So let's say that it only interferes 25% REM and deep sleep total, right? 10 and 15% of either one. Well, now you're getting, if you sleep eight hours, you're actually getting six hours of sleep. And so now you're going to perform as though you've only gotten six hours of sleep. And now you're going to need stress hormones to compensate for your lack of recovery. And so you're going to act and behave as though you only got six hours of sleep and you're not going to be any better off than somebody who got six hours of sleep. Now, another thing that came out in the research is that the sleep drugs that were just given away, like I'm sure you were practicing at the same time I was, this became like, you know, the new candy coated medicine. They're like, oh, these were risk-free, man. You can just give this stuff away by the caseload. People get great sleep. Everything's going to be fantastic. Don't worry about it. 
Well, that didn't turn out to be true, right? Now they've done research where, you know, if you take somebody who takes sleep drugs chronically, or if you take somebody who has insomnia chronically, they die on average about 12 years earlier. And the reason it doesn't shift is because you're not getting any more sleep. But they actually proved when they were forced to give up all the research is that you fell asleep about 13 minutes earlier if you took sleep drugs. You slept for a total of 38 minutes longer on average across all the research. But you interfered with the sleep architecture anywhere from 40 to or 20 to 80%, depending on if you're talking about deeper sleep. So you were probably losing half of the quality of your sleep for 38 minutes more sleep. It was a negative sum game. So you're doing worse by being on the sleep drugs. So you know, what I always tell people is 99.9% of people who don't sleep well do not have sleep disorders. They have behavioral disorders. They have sleep ritualization behavior disorders. And so you need to change your behaviors. And the first thing to changing your behavior is having a really big why. And you need to figure out your why. Now, the good thing about sleep research, unlike nutritional research or exercise research or even stress mitigation research, the good thing about sleep research is that it's consistent. Across the last 60 years, nobody said, oh yeah, you'll actually do better with less sleep. Doesn't happen. Never happened. No one says you'll, you'll actually do better sleeping during the day. It's never happened. It's like there's ways to suffer less if you aren't getting great sleep. That's kind of what sleep science has shown, but there's no controversy over how much sleep you need. And so you can go into Google Scholar or PubMed and put sleep and anything you care about. I don't care if it's playing a guitar, being a parent, making money, longevity, strength, endurance, like whatever, just put in sleep. And then just read until you're petrified, until you're like, okay, now I'm convinced. Now I have a big enough why. And then once you have a big enough why, you can figure out how to sleep. You know, it should be as easy as selling sex. It's easy. Like you already know how to do it. It's like kind of this innate thing. You just need to value it once you value it. And another thing I always say is, you know, one of the things we said in the SEAL teams is when we would be given some task that just seemed absolutely impossible, when people were bitching and moaning about it, they would say, if I, and this is, I'm aging myself a bit, so I mean, it's 30 years ago, but they would say, well, if I gave you a million dollars, could you do it? And then, you know, the answer is invariably, well, yeah, I can do it with a million bucks. Like, well, then you can do it without a million bucks. You know, get it done. And so that's what I tell people now. It's like, if you really believe me, if I put $10 million in escrow and we signed a legal contract and I said, if you could sleep 30 consecutive nights, eight hours a night with no sleep drugs, no sleep aids, I'll give you $10 million. How many people would figure out a way to do it? Almost everybody, Right. So you don't need, a, there's not a ton of education necessary other than to educate yourself or what you're doing. All the sleep hygiene is really just what I talked about. It's decreasing the blue light and it's decreasing the stimulation of your brain. And then when the sun goes down, another thing that happens is the air gets cooler and your body gets cooler. So drop in body temperature, decrease in blue light, decrease of stimulation. That's all sleep hygiene is. That's it. Everything else is smoke and mirrors. Like there's a million different ways to address that, but it's really just those three things. Oh my gosh. I'm not sure which direction to go in after that beautiful kind of explanation, because I had people, you know, reaching out, you know, those that are healthcare providers that are still working shift work, which I don't miss at all people that are working night shift. And as you stated, you know, their quality of life, their longevity is diminished greatly by not getting sufficient amounts of sleep. I got some questions that I definitely want to review with you before we dive into a little bit more about what we can do and that mindset piece, which is so important. So you touched on melatonin. And so I would imagine, you know, supplemental melatonin, it's dose dependent in terms of how it impacts sleep architecture, because I would imagine at very low doses, I think I read somewhere, and obviously you're the expert, 
it would be equivalent to like 0.5 milligrams of melatonin versus when you see products out, like even in, when I see supplements, it's 10 milligrams, five milligrams, three milligrams, right. and people are taking these habitually. I'm presuming that that impacts the melatonin receptors negatively over time. Is that correct? Yeah, it's true. And you're right on with your estimate. So from the time the sun goes down until the sun comes up, until you wake up in the morning, your brain will only produce about six micrograms of melatonin over that, you know, eight to 10, maybe 12 hour window. So if you're taking even one milligram, you're getting one milligram right now, right? That's super physiologic. Now, because nobody volunteers to have their brain biopsied for melatonin research, we can't say with 100% accuracy, like how much is downregulating at certain dosages, but we know through rat studies, you definitely downregulate receptors significantly. We haven't proven that you downregulate the production of melatonin, unless that's been done in the last year or something, but the last I've read about it, that hasn't been substantiated. However, if it's not true. If, if melatonin doesn't get downregulated by having exogenous melatonin put in, it is the only hormone in the body in which that would be true with. So the odds are drastically in favor of that being true. So you definitely want to keep it really low. And like, even in my product, I have two micrograms in there. And I have that because I just like the whole idea of my product is like, you're not going to spend three hours getting ready for bed, which I didn't cover, but that's about how long it takes the hunter gatherers that exist today from the time the sun goes down. Once that blue light shifts, it takes about three hours of shifts in your neurochemistry before you start feeling like sleeping. And so like the whole idea of my product is to like kind of try to super concentrate everything that would have built up in your brain over the course of those three hours. If you're spending 30 minutes getting ready for bed or an hour getting ready for bed, like we're, we're just trying to make sure that there's enough there, but nothing super physiologic. And everything's going to be gone in a couple hours. We're just trying to help you initiate sleep better, like more completely. But then your brain and body have to do the work. Like there's nothing in there that, that would force you to be asleep, right? There's no pharmacological trick in there to make you feel sleepy. It's just, we're just bringing all the resources there so that your brain can do it and giving you a little bit of melatonin just in case you haven't produced any yet. So melatonin is fine at really low dosage. If you're going to do high doses for a couple of days, like for jet lag or something that I think that's totally legit, totally fine to do. Okay. And that's helpful because back in the days before COVID, I used to travel a lot. Yeah. And yeah. so there was always the arsenal of things that I would take with me. I just want to touch on a couple more things before we end our call today. But, you know, I got questions about alcohol use, as you've already kind of touched on. We know that that definitely lowers melatonin and, you know, dysregulates not only cortisol, but our blood sugar what are your thoughts on EMF and radiation? Actually, the last podcast that I did was talking specifically about how that can make our sleep-wake cycles really negatively impact. And it's something for myself personally, I've really gotten savvy with because, you know, my kids, my teenagers are hating me right now, but like the Wi-Fi goes off at night and, you know, right. got them all, they've got blue blockers on and which they sometimes want to wear and sometimes don't, but we've gotten really serious about that aspect of sleep hygiene because we're so kind of surrounded by so much EMF and radiation, depending on where we live, unless you're in the middle of nowhere. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a huge proponent of the EMF philosophy is sort of movement, I should say, but I am a proponent of it. So like, I don't disbelieve it. I just don't claim to be an expert on it. And the reason I'm not an expert on it is because I haven't put the time into being an expert on it because I find it very confusing and very nebulous because 
you know, one of the big problems is, is like you said, like we're all completely immersed in this soup and we're trying to sort of imagine what normal would be if we weren't in the environment that we're in, but we are in the environment that we're in. So what degree is it having an impact to me? I think it's like everything else, right? It's like artificial lighting. That's definitely impacting your sleep. It's definitely impacting your health. You know, eating, you know, manufactured foods that are like, you know, highly processed, you know, something that you're tricking your body into processing something that's not really designed. Like there's definitely a cost to that. There's definitely a cost to using alcohol. There's definitely a cost to using drugs. Like all of this stuff is impacting our sort of ideal physiology, you know, and, and there's a, you know, what I always say is like, there's a reality line, there's the ideal, and then you build towards the reality, you know, you build towards the ideal and at a certain point you hit a reality, you have limitations, your schedule, you have kids, you have work time and school time and transit time, and you're like, whatever, there's limitations, you're a shift worker, whatever, you can't necessarily live ideally. But, you know, in that, once we figure out how big that gap is, that's where we start supplementing. And by supplementing, I mean, nutritional supplements, I mean, gadgets that you can wear to like decrease your stress, heart rate variability, training, box breathing, meditation, all those types of things, you know, optimizing your nutrition around that, like blue blocking glasses, shutting off the EMF, your Wi-Fi, your screen, like all this stuff. Like, right now you're getting as close to the ideal as you possibly can. I mean, EMF, unquestionably, it is energy going through your body. There is no way to pass energy through the body and not have any effect on the cellular metabolism of every cell in your body. Like you can't do that. So is that affecting you? Absolutely. 100%. I think you should try to shut that off to the best of your ability, but I can't say like, well, it's definitely doing this and this much is minimal and this much is max. Like I don't have any sort of deep expertise on that. I just say like my whole philosophy, like you read in my bio, it's like try to live as close to the way we evolved as possible. And you know, the only EMF we were experiencing 200 years ago was sunlight, right? And that was it. So like, you know, do the best you can to reapproximate how you evolved and it'll be the healthiest body you could possibly have because this body's been developing for a million years. You know, it's not, it can't keep up with the changes. So like the more we're able to decrease the impact of modernization of our life, just the more ideally this body will work. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I love your kind of realistic perspective. And I know that my listeners will definitely enjoy it as well. How can we connect with you? How can we find you on social media? I'm really interested in checking out your products. I know you actually have a children's or a kid's item as well. So tell us about that. Yeah. So the adult version was just made working with the seals. So that story I told you, I couldn't just take away their ambient and say, <laughs> suck it up, buttercup, right? Like I had to give them something. Mm -hmm. And so I came up with that concoction and they helped me come up with it. You know, it's like I researched the things that were sort of necessary, you know, the normal production pathway of melatonin really is really what the product is. So, you know, most people have heard of, of uh, the tryptophan coma and Thanksgiving, right? Well, turkey doesn't have any more tryptophan than any other meat. It's just nobody, people rarely eat a pound of steak, right? But you'll eat, you, you eat a pound of turkey. So you get a lot of tryptophan in, and then of course you get this big carb dump and all this. And so there's multiple things going on, but people tend to fall asleep. Well, tryptophan becomes 5-hydroxytryptophan and then 5-hydroxytryptophan with the help of magnesium and vitamin D3 becomes serotonin and then serotonin becomes melatonin. And melatonin is that starter pistol that we talked about that can change your neurophysiology and one of the big things that it does is it causes the production of GABA. So I have GABA in the product, and then there's an amino acid that helps GABA facilitate its work, L-theanine, and so that's in there. And then I put a little bit of phosphatidylserine in there because that decreases cortisol, and I told you about why you don't want cortisol while you're sleeping. 
And so again, it's just like bringing all the lumber to the construction site, but the crew still has to do the work. You know, when I first started the product, I had a lot, actually when I was tasting all the different formulations of the tea, because we didn't know exactly what we we're going to go with. I had all my kids taste test it with me. And it was like me and my wife and my kids and like one of my friends and maybe a neighbor or whatever. So there'd be like eight of us there. So I, nobody was getting like a full dose. Like everybody's just like getting flavors and every iteration that came through, my kids loved this berry formulation. And then they would fight, the three of them would fight over like who got to finish the berry formulation. <laughs> and they were like, you know, nine to, or probably eight to 12, like mm-hmm. across the three of them. And then, you know, on a Saturday afternoon at two o'clock, whatever, they would all go take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, well, this stuff actually works, right? <laughs> and so, you know, I wondered, you know, is there a market for it? But I really started the sleep supplement to get the seals off my back because they were having such a hard time buying everything and traveling with everything. And so they just gave, it was pure peer pressure. It was 100% peer pressure that led to me developing this to a product that I was really just planning on selling to the SEAL teams and not really making a business out of it. And then you know, and then Rob Wolf got involved and it, you know, it kind of changed the dynamics of it. And we ended up like, ended up being actually a reasonably successful business. And, but we've always had this kid's formulation, specifically the kid's flavor in the back of our mind. And my COO has recently become a mother and she's been with me for five years and she's been really interested in pushing the kid's formulation. But now the like, now that she's a mother and now that, you know, she has her concerns about idealizing her child's life and all this, she really wanted to make sure we got that out. And really it's the same concept as the adult formulation. It's just, we made it taste a lot better so that the kids really want to take it. And then of course we decreased the concentration of everything, but at least half I did, like, I just did some literature research. As you know, like you don't do supplement research on kids, but they do do supplement research on kids with disorders, right? So like, autistic kids or kids with ADD or, uh, you know, Down syndrome or something, they have sleep issues. And so, you know, there's supplement information with them. So it's not, you know, it's not exact, but what I did is I basically just looked through like the common deficiencies in kids and the research that did exist. And we came up with, I think would sort of be the minimal effective dose and a safe dose for any kid. And just like, uh, if you need help with the bedtime ritualization, you know, you can, give your kids this product and they'll like, you know, like they'll enjoy it. And the whole idea of having the tea is that it's creating some sort of ritual around sleep. You know, like you most people know you can't take a two-year-old who's like banging trucks together and throw them in a bed and flip off the light and walk out and expect them to stay in bed, right? Why? Because they need to get ready for bed, right? <laughs> Adults need to get ready for bed too, but yeah. we just, for some reason, think we don't. And mm-hmm. so we'll work on our computer until, you know, two minutes before bedtime and then go get bed and like, look at our watch 15 minutes later, wondering why we're not asleep yet. Yeah. It was like, well, you didn't get ready for bed. So like we need a ritualization too. So the whole reason I made it into a tea, one, so that it would absorb faster, but two is like, you have to go make the tea. So like, you know, there's a process you, like I'm at least getting 10 minutes out of you. <laughs> you know, like, like to, um, but ideally it's like, you know, you're going to think about this. It's going to be something that hopefully you look forward to, you like it, and it becomes part of your sleep ritualization. And this is just cool to help kids. And if, you know, if your kid does have ADD and they're on stimulations, you know, stimulate something we didn't talk about, you mentioned earlier, and I, I wanted to bring that up is that the, if you look at the DSM, the symptoms of ADD, and then you look at like Harrison's or something, the symptoms of sleep deprivation are identical. So if you have a kid who's being diagnosed with ADD, but they have a sleep deprivation, I would highly recommend 
sleep adapting them first, getting their sleep perfected before you get them assessed for having ADD. But you can't tell those two apart. Like I said, sleep deprivation shuts down the prefrontal cortex and a poorly functioning prefrontal cortex is all ADD is. Okay. And so you can't distinguish those two. So anyway, the point is if your kid has that and they're, you know, they have problems going to sleep or it's just like the schedule of stuff, you know, uh, like if, if you have an adolescent, they need, you know, they need 10 to 12 hours of sleep. And if they're only going to get eight or nine or nine or 10, I would make sure it's the highest quality you could possibly get them, you know, or, you know, if just like, the way schedules work and they just can't get as much sleep or uh, they can't sleep at the right time. So like, that's why we have the kids formulation. And then we also have, if you go to doc parsley, DOC parsley, like the herb docparsley.com, you can do that forward slash stress. And then I have like a, a sleep ritualization for adults to get rid of how to like, it's a fairly robust system for getting rid of stress and or getting rid of the impacts of stress on your sleep. And I highly recommend that for everyone. If they're just now trying to get good sleep and they haven't been sleeping well in the past, or if, you're, if they have been trying to get good sleep and they know that, you know, stress is a factor. I think most adults in America today have excess stress hormones. So mm-hmm. it's beneficial for everybody. We also have a downloadable PDF on creating a nighttime ritual for your kids. There's an ebook on my site that has a lot of what we've talked about today in more detail and yeah there's videos and blogs and all that on my site people can go check all of that out there's a ton of great resources i was checking them out while i was doing research well i'll definitely have to have you back you are a wealth of information thank you so much for your time today and we'll make sure all those links are included with the replay okay my pleasure Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes.